continues the Mahabharata, uh, Karnamrita told the story directly so wonderfully, so I'm going to go back over it and uh, I won't be, no, I'm not going to spoil all the wonderful things you said. My <laughs> dry academic <laughs> approach. <laughs> so, um, we left the Pandavas and Krishna and all their friends and enemies at the Rajasuya sacrifice, which was taking place in Indra Prastha. And Shishupala uh, has just received liberation involuntarily. Uh, this, is a, this is a very famous story in the tradition that, uh, again, just to recap very briefly, uh, at the beginning of this great sacrifice which would establish the emperor of the world, uh, someone had to be chosen to receive the first honors. There were all kinds of ceremonies, of course, associated with this. And so the greatest personality there had to receive those honors. And of course, all the great personalities of the world were there. Great sages, great kings, and so on. And uh, Bhishma, according to Mahabharata, and Bhagavatam, Sadhdev speaks. So there might have been various speeches, but uh, they stood up and uh, urged the assembly to select Krishna, that no one but Krishna, that it would be absurd to consider anyone else the greatest personality in that assembly, anyone but Krishna. And the, the assembly concurred, and in fact, Krishna did receive that honor. But Shishupala, Krishna's cousin, uh, was outraged. He, was, he definitely had an anger management issue. <laughs> He was outraged, and he, he stood up and began to insult Krishna in every, in every possible way, and impossible ways as well. And many people were outraged, and uh, Shishapala drew his weapon, others drew their weapons. You know, these were warriors. They were you know, trying to behave and just do a religious ceremony, but their natures emerged. And so... Krishna requested all his friends to not to bother with Shishupala, he would personally take care of it. And he called for his famous chakra weapon, which you can often see in paintings, and um, gave Shishupala a haircut just below the chin. <laughs> I can't drink water while you do this. So, uh, it's nice to have people laugh at your jokes. So, so the amazing thing which became very, very famous and is always talked about in the tradition throughout literature is that in the sight of everyone, Shishupala's soul came out of his body and merged into the body of Krishna. So he was awarded, there are five kinds of liberation or moksha mentioned in Shishupala received Sayujamuti, a merging into the body of God, which is considered the beginner stage of liberation. So, um, so uh, Shishupala is, uh, has gone home. Now, the, the Rajasuya sacrifice was actually carried out, of course, and Yudhisthira was established as the king of kings. 
Duryodhana was not at all happy, but he cooperated. He, there was nothing else he could do at that point. And for him to object, he was not as irrational as Shishupala. He understood that his only hope for ultimate victory was to, so to speak, go with the flow right now and wait till the energy changed and try to, you know, take another whack at evil. So, um, so the, the sacrifice was over. And, I mean, you could imagine, let's say, like, like there's a big wedding or some kind of big event, bar mitzvah, whatever, and, and so after the, the crowd has gone home, you know, the intimate family members stay behind and kind of, you know, hang out together for a little while. That's natural. And so that's what happened. After the Rajasuya sacrifice was over, all these kings and Sages went back to wherever they lived, and just the the inner family, the the family members stayed behind for a few days, including Duryodhana. Now, the Pandava Palace in Duprastra was built by Mayadanava, isn't it? <laughs> Which one? The Krishna's palace, Sudharma. So it was a oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Time out's over. So So this palace was not only a palace of celestial opulence. The, 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 the riches of this palace went beyond anything anyone had ever seen in the world. But because it was built by the celestial craftsmen, it also had all kinds of built-in illusions, which especially uh, acted upon pretentious fools. So, um, one day when Duryodhana was staying behind, he was already very unhappy to see Yudhisthira flourishing and succeeding, because after all, his program was to do the opposite, to stop that tape power himself. So he entered a portion of the palace which was filled with all of these mystical uh, constructions. And um, that's another ashram down the road. <laughs> so there was, there was, and so it's mentioned that there was a part of the palace that was actually uh, dry. It was actually just solid, you know, solid floor, but it looked like water. So when Duryodhana had to cross it, he pulled up his cloth, you know, but it was, it was just solid <laughs> floor. And then there's another part, which was actually water, but looked solid, and he fell into the water. And so, there's an interesting scene where the, the ladies in the palace started laughing, so feel free to follow their example. The ladies of the palace started laughing at Duryodhana, and, um, it was, because it was, it was comical. This big, powerful, proud, envious guy, you know, just like, you know, pulling up his cloth to walk over dry land and then falling in the water. So the women started laughing. Some of the palace women started laughing. And Eustace, of course, it was felt bad for... For Yodin and said, shh, you don't laugh. But Krishna said, no, let him, let him laugh. 
this is, of course, this is the Duryodhana who was trying to murder the Pandavas and do all kinds of things. So, anyway, Duryodhana was so proud. His, sort of his demonic nature began to come out. He didn't see the fun of it. And he immediately left the palace and left Indraprastha and went back to his own city, Sastanapur, which, of course, he had usurped. And uh, he was so disturbed, so depressed to be embarrassed like that, to see his rivals flourishing, that he, he entered into a very deep depression and basically stopped eating, and his friends became very worried for him. This is something which will be repeated later. But he was, but he was uh, just depressed and fasting and, and absolutely wretched and miserable, so much so that his father was really concerned about his health. His father was actually seriously concerned about what would happen to him because he was he was had entered into such a deep depression. So then his uncle Shakuni, good old uncle Shakuni, a word about Shakuni. Uh, Shakuni is the brother of Duryodhana's mother. Duryodhana's mother is the famous Gandhari. Her brother is Shakuni. They're they are from Afghanistan, which at that time was part of the immediate Vedic civilization. So, uh, Shakuni was a famous gambler. He was really good at, at gambling, especially with dice. And here, so here, here we have a situation where Dhritarashtra is, is extremely concerned, and, and of course, Gandhari, Duryodhana's mother, because he is so depressed. He's not eating, his health is basically collapsing. And, uh, so Shakuni goes to Duryodhana and says, you know, it's like that sign they say, don't get mad, get even. And so Shakuni tells Duryodhana that we can fix this. That um, this is the plan. You have your father order Yudhisthira to come for a gambling match and we will take everything from him. This gambling match. Uh... Duryodhana did not directly challenge Yudhisthira. He had his father do it. And again, the Pandavas, this is, the, this is sort of like the end. This is the last phase of the story where the Pandavas are still kind of innocent, grew up as sages, still a little bit naive, but learning. And so, as we'll see, something will happen which will end all that, and the Pandavas will dramatically change. So... Because Dhritarashtra told him to come. First of all, it was a Kshatriya principle among warriors. You can't turn down a challenge. If someone challenges you, you have to stand up to it. And secondly, it was arranged that Dhritarashtra, so-called surrogate father, would invite Yudhisthira. So the Pandavas came. It's just after the Rajasuya sacrifice. And to make a long story short, uh, or I could make a short story long, but... Uh, Shakuni cheated, and uh, he, he was a gambler and a cheater. This is not the first time a gambler has also been a cheater. And uh, he began to take everything away from Yudhisthira. All of his riches, eventually his kingdom, his weapons, and ultimately uh, his brothers. Because uh, if, you, if you study, I, I mentioned this earlier to some, some of the people here, if you study the nature of feudal law, or just the way the world was before the Industrial Revolution and the modern, modernization of the world, it just says nowadays, if someone owes you money, if someone owes you money, 
that financial date is a completely negotiable instrument. You can sell the debt, auction the debt, trade the debt, uh, pawn the debt, whatever. It, it's just a financial instrument, so it's like money. So in the same way, in the ancient world, actually all over the world, there were political and military debts. You see this everywhere, uh, in Roman civilization, Greek, Indian, everywhere. So that the Pandavas were sworn to follow their brother, to serve their brother as princes. And so that obligation, that debt, was negotiable. It could be gambled. So it's not that in that culture you could gamble human beings. I think that's a sort of a common misunderstanding. Rather, you could, what you could gamble is that obligation. So he gambled his brothers and lost them. He lost his own brothers. And, you know, gambling is an addiction. It was like a fever in Eudistir, who's Dharma Raj, the king of virtue. He was sort of trapped in this situation. In the Sanskrit, every time Sukuni wins, he cries out, Jitam. Because from the Sanskrit root Ji, from which you get the word Jai, like, you know, we say Jai this or Jai that. It means like victory to or glory to or whatever. So from the same root, Jitam, which means it's one. It's one. And so he would throw the dice and call out Jitam. So in this way, uh, he took everything away from the Pandavas. Now we come to Draupadi. Uh, there are some Hindu versions of the story where Yudhisthira gambled Draupadi. Uh, I personally don't think that's exactly what happened. But in any case, what we do know is that once the Pandavas were powerless, they'd lost all of their weapons. They'd lost themselves. And the Kurus began to show, or, or Duryodhana and his brothers, showing their demonic nature, decided to drag Draupadi into this men's gambling hall. And uh, this alone was considered to be a, an unprecedented offense to her, to drag a respectable woman, or any woman, into a men's gambling hall, which men's gambling halls uh, back then were not much better than they are today. So... Uh, and when they dragged her in, they wanted to humiliate her. Many versions of the story say that they tried to strip her, tear off her cloth. Uh, this is not, if you read the Sanskrit text, it's not actually an erotic story because it's described that Draupadi was in her menstrual period and she's described as Ekabastha. She was just simply wearing one cloth and uh, she was sort of sequestered during this time. And so to drag, and, and plus she's a, she's a goddess. This is the same Draupadi who was born out of the altar of a fire sacrifice, this fiery, beautiful woman. And I also mentioned how Draupadi was born with such beauty that she would ultimately cause the destruction of the Asuras because their demonic nature could not resist her beauty. And we, I also mentioned that Duryodhana had never gotten over his bitter anger, because he wanted Draupadi. He wanted to enjoy Draupadi. What's interesting is that the Pandavas did not want to enjoy Draupadi. They, these are great souls. These are enlightened beings, personal associates of Krishna. And the Pandavas uh, actually had, you could say, I mean, to use a cliche, but in this case it actually applies, a really spiritual relationship with Draupadi. It was among souls. Whereas Duryodhana simply wanted to exploit her and um, so she was dragged, Dukshasana. Dukshasana, which literally means sort of like uh, bad instructions. Um, <laughs> Mr. Bad Instructions. 
He used to chip off the old blocks, sort of like during Yodanov, but worse. So, Dukshasana, actually, first they sent, they sent a messenger, they sent one of their, one of the, the, the royal staff to bring Dropadi. And uh, this guy who was just like a normal human being, didn't want to do it. He understood this is an incredible offense, and, and he didn't want to go, but they sort of told him, go and get her. So he went there and sort of humbly explained why he'd been sent, and Dropadi, uh you know, told him where he could go. <laughs> and so he went back. He didn't, he didn't want to mess with the goddess. So he went back and said she won't come. So then Dukshasana went himself. Prince Dukshasana went himself and dragged her into the men's uh, gambling hall, pulled her by her hair. And so, so again, their demonic natures were coming out. In the Bhagavad Purana, Srimad Bhagavatam, there's a powerful statement that says, uh, which we, I, I mentioned, Kacha Sparsha Kshatayusha, that the men who did this, these Asuras, uh, cut down their own duration of life by touching her. That simply to touch her, to... to to grab her hair, that they actually cut down their own duration of life. The word for duration of life is ayur, if you know the word ayurveda, which literally means knowledge of prolonging life, duration of life. And so here it said, kacha sparsha kshatayusha. Anyway, so they dragged her there, and then according to many accounts, they tried to, again, this is a goddess, the offense, as we're going to see, nature itself is going to react against this. And so they tried to strip her cloth, and, uh, well, as Karnamita very beautifully explained it, on the authority of a very devoted Hindu lady on a train. Uh, and she told the story very beautifully, that um, ultimately, her husband's could not help her. They had been disarmed. They were surrounded by thousands of highly armed enemies, including Asuras with supernatural powers. They couldn't help her. And, and the elders of the assembly, Bhishma and Drona, who were there, did not stand up for her. And this was considered to be a um, significant uh, moral mistake on their part that forever after that, they would, it would be seen that they had actually lost some of their stature as elders because they didn't stand up for Draupadi. And uh, Vidura, it was Vidura who actually, the Mahabharata, is the only one who stood up and condemned the outrage and basically spoke the truth and said very plainly to the Kurus that you are destroying yourselves by touching this woman. So... Uh, anyway, Draupadi had no other shelter. Vidura, they did not obey Vidura. Bhishma and Drona kept silent. And uh, therefore she turned to her only real shelter, which was Krishna. In fact, when the common name of Draupadi is Krishna. I mean, she's so much identified with Krishna. And, um, and Krishna saved her. I mean, there's a, there's a very popular story that Krishna which is also found in, in several editions of the Mahabharata, where Krishna actually supplied an unlimited amount of cloth, so that as these big, tough warriors were pulling the cloth, she remained covered. Krishna protected her honor, and eventually they became exhausted. There are many paintings of this with you know, like a huge pile of cloth, and, and all these so-called big warriors exhausted and bewildered. 
And um, the text also mentions that at that point, this was such an offense against Dharma that uh, nature itself began to cry out against it, and there were all kinds of, I mean, the worst possible omens. If you know anything about the history of Rome and Greece, people, even the great Roman Empire, with all their logic and their engineering and their you know, military skill and so on, they took omens extremely seriously. In fact, everyone in the ancient world did. They took these things to be uh, genuine indicators of what was going to happen, what was auspicious or not. And uh, the Romans would never go into battle without first clearing all these things. They wanted to check all... And they were successful, so something was working for them. Anyway, so all the worst possible omens in, in, in terms of like birds shrieking and, and just animals, all kinds of things, just, I mean, nature itself was just, had been violated in a sense by the offense of this goddess. And uh, Dhritarashtra, when he realized, he finally got it. He understood that actually uh, the Kurus were self-destructing by this offense against Draupadi. And in fact, when Krishna, in fact, Draupadi cursed them. She had the power to do that as a great woman. She had, and she cursed them that they would, uh, there's a famous curse that, that, that she spoke in the Mahabharata where she said that, because they, they untied her hair. Now one thing you may know if you, if you know what the prayers mean, especially those of you who know something about uh, this Vedic culture, that the body, the body itself is a very powerful symbol. I mean, it's sort of like this sacred symbolic physiology, anatomy, in the sense that the feet are so important. There are just innumerable <coughs> prayers and songs about the feet of the guru, the, or the feet of the deity, and so on. And just as, because of course it's the lowest part of the body, and so this is the greatest act of humility, but one actually completely surrenders oneself as a soul to God, or as the representative of God, by adoring the feet, by touching the feet, and, uh, and so on. And so just as the feet are a very, very powerful symbol throughout, and you find, of course, the same thing in Buddhism, just as the feet are a very powerful symbol of submission, the head, and, and, and the highest part of the body, the hair, is also a very, very powerful symbol. So that to touch someone's head in, in an aggressive or insulting way is the greatest possible offense just as by touching the feet is the greatest act of submission. And there, there are many, many stories about this. Anyway, so this offense to Draupadi was so grave that they dared to touch her head, to untie her hair, and, 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 and so on. And so Draupadi then uttered a curse that because they had done this to her, because they had offended her in this way, that all of their wives would also untie their hair because that's what a woman did when she mourned the death of her husband. So basically, Draupadi said that what you've done to me, all your wives will do, because you all die. And everyone that offended her, and it said that when Krishna heard this curse, he immediately, he, he declared that it would, he would enforce it. So that's the story of Draupadi. And um, anyway, Dhritarashtra, the king, when he realized that the Kurus were self-destructing, he heard Draupadi's curse, and it, he knew that actually she had the power to utter such a curse. Uh, he immediately stopped everything. Because after all, he was the king. Duryodhana, if you study the Mahabharata, Duryodhana is constantly kind of like encroaching on his own father's power. And the relationship is constantly like changing where Duryodhana is becoming more and more independent and, and, and reckless. And his father, in the beginning, his father 
orders him, and then the second, then later his father argues with him, and finally his father just kind of like appeals to him, like, please, could you please not do this? So, I mean, it's sort of a natural thing as the, the son grows up, the father's getting older. But at this point, Peter Rostra simply declared that this, this is over, this is finished. And he, he was terrified that, that the Kurus were self-destructing, so he, his own family, so he called Dropadi up to him. And, uh, you know, began to treat her very nicely. You're my daughter. I mean, as long as he thought he'd get away with it, there was no, none of this daughter stuff. But now that, you know, he feared for his dynasty, he began to treat her very nicely. He told her that, please, I'll give you anything you like. Just ask anything and I'll grant it to you. And so she first asked, she said that uh, I want all of my husbands, all of the Pontifas to be free. And so he granted it. The second wish, I want everything they lost, I want it restored to them. So that was also given. And Rita Rostra said, after something else, she said, no, that'll do. She kind of put him on notice that, you know, everything you stole from us, I've taken back, but I don't want any charity from you. I've simply taken back, I've simply, I've taken back what you stole. And I mean, Kshatriyas in general, were, were very strong in this point. They wouldn't accept charity. It's considered humiliating for, for a warrior to accept charity. So the Pandavas take what they've lost, they, they, they've been restored uh, to their original position, and they leave, heading for back to their city of Indraprastha. All this took place in Hastinapur, in the Kuru capital. So once they leave, Duryodhana goes crazy again. He's, he's in complete panic because... He, he tells his father, what are you doing? Don't you understand now that they're going to be our enemies, what they're going to do to us now, if they have the power to do it? And so somehow or other, uh, he convinces his father to call the Pandavas back. They haven't even reached their city yet. They're actually on the road. To call them back. This time, none of this garbage of, you know, you know, insulting Dropa, nothing like that. It's just one throw of the dice. And whoever wins... Whoever loses, I should say, whoever loses will go, I think I think it was 13 years plus one. I think it was a total of 14. What? Rama is 14. Oh, 12 and 1? Okay. I've just been informed by my uh, research staff that... <laughs> so the... Okay, anyway, it's, 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 it's in the low teens. But... <laughs> that whoever loses this... Whoever loses this throw of the dice has to go into exile in the forest, give up their kingdom, go into exile for 12 or 13 years. And then one more year at the end, they have to live incognito. And they have to live incognito within a kingdom. In other words, you can't go off to the mountains and just, you know, go into a cave and, and seal it with a rock so no one can find you. You actually have to live inside of one of the great kingdoms. You have to be there and yet go undetected, undiscovered for one year. And if you are discovered during that year, it's another 12 or 13 years. So, of course, Shakuni, uh, gambling on behalf of... And Duryodhana doesn't even gamble himself. Shakuni, Prince Shakuni of Gandhara, uh, Gandhara, gambles on his behalf, wins, and the Pandavas are sent into exile. Now... And then, of course, begins the great book of the Mahabharata called the Vanaparva, the forest book. Uh, some very significant points about this are that uh, there, 
this is, as they say, a complete game changer. In terms of the Pandavas, it's interesting that as long as the Kurus or Duryodhana insulted them, offended them, threatened them, even tried to kill them, somehow or other their, their Brahmin thing kept, you know, kicking in and whatever, you know. And they somehow, they somehow tolerated it and, and depended on Krishna. But when they offended Draupadi, that was the last. But it's interesting that for themselves they could tolerate so many things, but when Draupadi was offended, that they would not tolerate. And so it's described very clearly that as they were leaving Hastinapur, I mean, lost their kingdom for, for many years, uh, they were in a completely different mood. In fact, it's said that when Draupadi was being offended, Duryodhana, who apparently kind of had a, a good body, which he was very proud of, and he, you know, he had, thought he had these really powerful, attractive thighs. I mean, nowadays, guys, even some people, men even get a calf implant, so... Vanity can make one truly stupid. So anyway, as Drobody was being offended, he sort of pulled back his cloth and revealed his thigh, kind of like in this disgusting gesture. And... Uh, So Bhima, although he couldn't do anything, he, he, he said to Duryodhana, ex exactly on that, you know, lovely thigh of yours, that's where I'm going to smash you and I'm going to break it. And I'm going to kill you there. So actually, anyway, we'll see that. That comes out later. And, so he, and, and as the Pandavas are leaving, it's like no more Mr. Nice Pandava. As they're... As they're leaving Hastinapur, they actually take vows. They actually take vows that when they come back, if the Kurus do not come, give them the kingdom, there will be war. And this is really the first time the Pandavas aggressively say that there will be war, and we will kill you. So the offense to Draupadi, it changed them. It was like they, they sort of, yeah, it, it completely changed their consciousness, and now no, they were not going to tolerate anything else from them. From the Kurus. So they leave the city. The people, of course, were very depressed to see the Pandavas going. They went out into the forest and followed by many Brahmins. They fought, they urged the Brahmins to go back because they said, we can't really take care of you. I mean, you know, it's, if you're out alone in the forest, you have no money, no credit cards, just uh, living <laughs> off the forest and to feed hundreds of Brahmins because they, they felt they had to take care of them. They said, we, we're just not in a position to take care of you. Go back to the city and wait for us there. So, um, meanwhile, actually, one point I could mention. What's another Asha? <laughs> they're, having, they're having their music. No. So, yes, as the Kurus were offending Draupadi, what was going on with Krishna? What was Krishna doing? Because according to, uh, of course, a very, very popular story that, as, Kar as Karnamita told it, Draupadi first tried to, obviously tried to protect herself, tried to protect her honor and keep herself covered. And finally, when she saw she couldn't fight against these warriors, she just threw her hands up and appealed to Krishna. So that, that's one of the great scenes in the Bhakti tradition of Draupadi, crying out to Krishna and Krishna responding. But later... Draupadi actually asked Krishna, why didn't you personally come? Why didn't you personally come? 
And Krishna explained, because my own city, Dwarka, was under attack. There was a demon named Shalva, who apparently had this amazing airship. Uh, There's a whole field of inquiry called Ancient Aliens, in which a lot of the great achievements of the ancient world, such as, you know, building pyramids that would be hard to build today, and you know, all kinds of things. The fact that throughout ancient civilizations they talk about interplanetary communication, travel, airships, and so on. So there's a whole there's a whole theory called, and in fact, the History Channel uh, just did a big special on that called Ancient Aliens. In any case, this uh, this Asura Shalva had an, had an airship which was amazing. It could it could had all kinds of power, sort of like a stealth airship in the sense that it could appear here, disappear, go invisible, appear somewhere else. There were all kinds of weapons on it. It was it was very large, almost like like a like a village. I mean, it was, it, it was like um, this huge thing you could actually live in. And so he attacked Dwarka. Krishna was away, and so Krishna came back and uh, destroyed his airship and, and destroyed Shalva. That's what Krishna was doing. Actually, uh, are there any questions? We haven't really left time for any questions. Can we take a few minutes to see if anyone has a question about these stories? Do you have any questions? We have a, just a few minutes. Yes. Yeah, is that like a good reason for Krishna not to be in two places at the same time? Is there a good reason for Krishna not to be in two places at the same time? I guess there is. Krishna, what what the ancient texts tell us again and again and again is that Krishna was playing the part of a human being. And... uh, Kunti herself, uh, Pandava's mother, uh, there are some beautiful, beautiful Sanskrit prayers which Kunti offered to Krishna just after the battle of Kurukshetra. They're famous prayers, some of the most exquisite Sanskrit prayers. And um, she she talks about Krishna as Nato Natya Dharojata, that you are just like an actor in costume. And so Krishna did come to this world and play that. And, and so why does he do that? Uh, for one thing, because God respects our free will. And so Krishna doesn't doesn't want to bring back to his eternal abode a bunch of people that don't really care about him, but just kind of are into the benefits. Like, sure, salvation, sure, spiritual opulence, sure. And so therefore Krishna comes and acts in a certain way so that people who are not inclined to accept him will not be disturbed in their faith. Agnosticism or atheism is also a type of faith, as Krishna points out in the Gita. It's just you believe something else. In fact, a negative belief, believing something is not the case, is equally a belief. I mean, according to any system of logic. So, Krishna acted like a human being, and uh, although when there was need, I mean, often he would do incredible things that only Krishna could do. But still, for the most part, he, he just played the part, played that role. Yes? Doesn't he also sort of not take sides and he stays a little, he tries to stay a little bit um... impartial? That's another point that's mentioned constantly in the Bhagavad Purana that Krishna, despite the fact that, that apparently Krishna took the side of the Pandavas or, or, or fought against this or that asura, that, that the, the principle in the Bhagavad Gita famous verses, that all people, as they approach me, 
I reciprocate with them. And so because the Pandavas loved Krishna and wanted his help and support, he reciprocated with them. And those who were against Krishna, even those who were against Krishna doesn't punish someone because someone's against him. It's not like if you don't believe in Krishna, then you go to hell forever or something like that. Uh, go to some hell where you have to you know, spend eternity listening to public radio fundraising drives. <laughs> Probably one of the worst punishments. Um, to humanity. Anyway, um, what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita is that he's equal to everyone, but because the Asuras, the demons, were actually committing unjust acts against other people, therefore Krishna stepped in. Not It's not that you know he has a self-esteem issue and so if you don't worship him, he'll do something bad to you. It's not like that. He's not a jealous God. He's actually... Okay. So, so, but, but, but the ancient texts talk about this over and over and over again. That Krishna was actually impartial. He did. He doesn't. Krishna himself says in the Gita that "samohang sarvabhuteshu." I'm equal to all creatures. shosti. I'm not against anyone. Namaypriya. I don't favor anyone. I simply reciprocate with all souls according to their own behavior. Yes. Oops. Is there any answer a bit to get more into this question? Why did Bhishma uh, didn't say anything about this uh, humiliation? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Bhishma, as I mentioned earlier, uh, was a deontological ethicist. And of course, you all know what that is. <laughs> uh, anyway, as, as I explained earlier, Bhishma wasn't. For him, the act itself, like you tell the truth. If by telling the truth, you know, all kinds of innocent people are mutilated, but you have to tell the truth. Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, actually held this view, amazingly enough, because he seemed bright otherwise. <laughs> so, so Bhishma, at least according to the text of the Mahabharata, actually got tripped up on a legal technicality. In the sense that... Uh, Eudister gambled himself away in, in, in terms of his feudal obligations. And, and so the issue was, if you've lost yourself, how can you lose someone else? If Eudister already lost himself, how could he lose, or how could he still possess Dropity if he doesn't even possess himself? And so therefore, Dropity must also belong to whoever owns Eudister. And Bhishma, I mean, here is this great woman, this this enlightened being, this goddess, who's being horribly offended, and he's kind of thinking, yeah, I mean, I hate what's happening to her, but I'm trying to figure out the legal technicality. <laughs> and so, Krishna is very different. Krishna is just like, you know, Krishna, Krishna's position is, some, you know, that's wrong, and so you can't do it, period. No technicalities, you just can't do that because you're, you're hurting innocent people. It's, it's wrong. So, Bhishma, uh, that's the picture we get in Mahabharata, at least. He just couldn't figure out the legal technicality. And, and so this horrible thing was going on. Then Drona, of course, uh, owed literally everything he owned to the Kurus. And so, in fact, Arjuna himself, in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 1, Arjuna calls 
these people, are Vishnu and Drona, aren't the Kama, who are simply pursuing their own interest. And so he says that even though they're Artha Kama, they're simply pursuing their own interests, still they're gurus if we kill them. He says literally we will enjoy spoils tainted by blood. So that's in chapter 1 where Arjuna doesn't want to fight. But still he calls them Artha Kama. They're acting selfishly for their own interests. Another kirtan style. <laughs> so, any other questions? Or I, I guess um, one here. Yes, last one. Oh, I'm sorry, Brenda. No, yes. I was just wondering, did uh, Bhima make, make any vow against Kushashan, or is that just a story? Oh, there's kind of a there's a very gothic thing. I mean, the Mahabharata, <laughs> where uh, Bhima swears he will drink Kushashan's blood from from his heart while he's living. And he washed you up in his carrying or something. Right? Yeah. So whether he really said this or whether uh, India went through a sort of a, as I mentioned, a Clint Eastwood phase in its history, <laughs> sort of like a dirty, hairy phase. And, and, and so some of these descriptions, and you wonder, did they really do all this or... Again, Dhritarashtra, because they felt that according to the, the warrior Dharma, first of all, because Dhritarashtra was their superior, they told them to come, and secondly, a warrior couldn't refuse a challenge, so Yudhisthira felt he was obliged to do it. Yes, back then? Uh, what's the moral of the story? Is it that we shouldn't gamble, or is there something deeper? Well, that's definitely one of the morals of the story. <laughs> that's definitely one of the morals of the story. And uh, there, are, there, there are many morals of the story not to offend women, that there are terrible consequences for offending women. And uh, it's basically Dharma, that one should follow Dharma. So perhaps we're a little over time. And uh, so tomorrow, uh, tomorrow we start earlier, don't we? At 6.30? Okay, we'll start at the Mahabharata reading at 6.30. So I uh, hope we'll see you all there. <laughs>